The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Teresa Brown, Ph.D., R.N., New York Times contributor and author of The Shift, One Nurse, 12 Hours, Four Patients' Lives. Uh, Teresa is a uh, former English professor at Tufts University. Uh, she is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, CNN.com, and the American Journal of Nursing. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Teresa. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. And also, I'm so interested in your topic because, you know, I'm your social worker with a microphone. And yes. Work, yeah, my specialty is hospital social work. So, you know, I, and have worked in settings that you describe in your book, an uh, oncology ward, uh, for many, many years. So, uh, and this is your second book, right? The shift, yeah. Yes, the first book is called Critical Care. It's basically a memoir of my first year of being a nurse. So the subtitle is A New Nurse Faces Death, Life, and Everything in Between, and that pretty much captures what it was like and, and, and what I think is like for all new nurses. So now we've, as you talk about the shift, now this is the shift, 12-hour shift. The book is about uh, four patients on a 12-hour shift oncology unit, uh, non-fiction book. Uh, So why did you decide to write this book? Because this is very specific in terms of dealing with each one of these patients. Right. I really wanted to find a way to let readers into the world of healthcare through longer stories. Many books about healthcare <clears throat> have, say, here's a chapter about how we do tests, and here's a chapter about how doctors think, and here's a chapter about you know X, Y, or Z, whatever. And and those are great books. But I thought to really give people a flavor of the work, we need a really long story. And paradoxically, it turned out that the way to do that was to write about one shift because there's so much that happens during every single shift in a hospital. Well, I think the other thing, Teresa, you are a nurse, but you're, you're a nurse. You're not really a nurse who writes. You're a writer who's a nurse. You're both. I mean, what, you have a Ph.D. in, in English from the University of Chicago and taught at Tufts University. Actually, that's where one of my sons graduated from, great university. I mean, you have these fabulous credentials on kind of both sides of the fence, writing and nursing. So uh, you kind of are the person to put this all together. Oh, well, to that's, yeah. that's very nice of you to say. It's interesting, though, when I went into nursing, I, I had kids, and when I became a mom, I wanted something very different from my work life, I realized, and that's what drew me to nursing. And I've never looked back, but I, I thought I had shut a door on the literature and books part of my life as a, <clears throat> excuse me, as part of my professional life. So it was 
really wonderful when being a nurse meant I suddenly had things I really wanted to write about and there was an audience for them and I've been very lucky to have a lot of support at the New York Times and other places, but it's a very happy marriage of my two passions. But Teresa, uh, why, and I'm sure other people have probably asked you this, but why a nurse as opposed to a doctor? What's the difference between a doctor and a nurse? Why did you choose to be a, a nurse as a, and, and not a doctor? Yeah, that's a fair question. <laughs> I had midwives when I was pregnant with my twins, and I really, really loved the job that they did. And a friend of mine who's a nurse said, Teresa, you could do that job. And so that started me down the nursing path. And the more I looked into it, the more it just felt like the right place for me. And now that I've been doing it for several years, I can say I really like being in that in-between space where I'm the person who's there with the patient for 12 hours, seeing what's going on with them, talking to them, really paying attention to all the little details of their care, and then trying to translate all that to physicians or physical therapists or CT. And I actually love that. I love being in that position, and it's so important for patients. So sometimes I think it'd be nice if... uh, I had maybe all the authority that doctors have, or <laughs> sometimes well, okay, I wish. Well, I'll uh, stop you there. What is the authority? Because you're talking, you're in between the patient and the doctor, and you get all the information. And I know what happens. You know, the doctor comes in, tells, oftentimes, tells the patient what's going on, uh, you know, treatment, et cetera, and then the doctor leaves, and then the patient really turns to the nurse and says, what did he or she say, and talk to me and explain it, right? Like, and you're there kind yes. of. Yes. Yeah. Right. And we're trained to do that. We're trained to be educators. We're trained to be translators of physicians, although it doesn't get talked about that way. And I, I really like that. I love those intimate moments. And in fact, as a teacher, I loved working with students one-on-one. I just didn't love standing up in front of a classroom. So there's some parallels. Uh, one of the things that uh, I mean, you, in the book, I mean, I guess it stands out. I mean, you're talking about a cancer ward, oncology. Um, why did you choose oncology? I mean, that's the one that was kind of like, well, it used to be very depressing because usually, often, pa- patients would be on oncology wards, and that was it. That was kind of like a death sentence, but that's not yeah. true today. It's a whole different atmosphere, a whole different process. So um, was there anything anything in your own life, or why did you pick oncology? Oh, yeah, Definitely. There's a lot of cancer in my mom's family, and my mom actually had a rare form of cancer called hairy cell leukemia that, for most people, does not become an acute issue, does not become life-threatening, but it can. She was very lucky. A treatment came out, um, this was several years ago now, that completely put her cancer into remission. She has no issues with it whatsoever. But I really had a strong sense of wanting to give back because of the great care that my mom got. And I went into it being afraid of cancer, and now I feel like I'm, I'm contributing to helping to take some of the darkness away. What's the most scary thing about being a nurse on a cancer ward, or just being a nurse in general, I guess? I mean, the responsibility that you have. I mean, patients... I, I, um, 
once worked on a dialysis unit at a major hospital. And uh, that was kind of a terrifying place. As a matter of fact, the doctors and the nurses often needed counseling uh, after a while if they stayed on the unit too long because one minute the patient is fine and the next minute they bleed out and that's the end. So, uh, I mean, that was kind of pretty scary stuff. But, um, you know, what what's the most, I guess, challenging part of 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 your work. Um, yeah, well, on a, that's exactly yeah. what you're saying, that people, patients can turn on a dime, and that's actually what got me started writing, that I had a patient who was set to go home, and she started coughing up blood, and then she was dead. And I just uh, never knew that really happened, actually, in real life. Until you see it, you can't really believe it. So... That's very, very scary. And then day-to-day worries are about dropping balls, missing something. I mean, that in the shift, that's one of the patients named Sheila and is misdiagnosed, and I end up beating myself up a little bit about why didn't I get this? Why didn't I see what was happening? So there's always a fear that we're missing something. So how do you get over that? Because there are going to be mistakes. I mean, that's just, I guess, the nature of any profession, any business, anything we do. So how do you take care of yourself? I mean, what do you do when you feel that you made the mistake? Like you did, you were, I guess, complicit in, in a wrong diagnoses or, I, you know, you can... Well, what other kinds of mistakes are there? Yeah, well, there are medication errors, um, you know, giving... Uh, this actually, I wrote about this for the New York Times. I was supposed to give two chemotherapy drugs together, and it was the end of a shift where I'd agreed to work 16 hours, and I just spaced on giving one of the drugs. I mean, I just completely spaced it out. I, I can't explain it except that it was exhaustion. It didn't make any difference for the patient. I felt terrible. I felt like I wanted to die. Um, The great thing was at work, people were just so professional about it. Like, the patient's not hurt. It's really okay. And, in fact, the oncologist said, you need to go and talk to her. You need to tell her. And then you'll see that everything's all right. So people normalized that for me. Now, if someone had really gotten hurt, it probably would have been different. Um, Fortunately, I've never made a mistake like that. But it's really important to have your workplace be professional and kind about it. That's huge. And what can a patient do to, to, I say, protect themselves? Because, I mean, I think patients take a lot more responsibility in their care today, have a lot more information, which is a good thing. Um, Is there anything we as patients and you as a nurse can give us advice? We go into a hospital. um, We are conscious. uh, Obviously, if we're not conscious, we can't make decisions. But um, is there anything that we can do? I mean, I I remember my father, many, way, you know, when they first first were doing open-heart surgery in the 70s, and he was a lawyer and a trial attorney, and he was uh, really on his deathbed, but he lived another 15 years after that. But he was actually questioning the medication he was getting, and the nurse said to, to me, and uh, to my mother, this is one smart guy. <laughs> I mean, he's lying there, you know, like, it, it, you know, he could die tomorrow or not, but he's questioning his medication. Can we do that? Should we, we should be doing that, I think, shouldn't we? I, I agree with you. And, well, there's another character in the book named 
Candace, who's someone we would always call a quote-unquote difficult patient, but someone who's exactly like that, questions everything, wants to know what's going on, wants things to be clear to her, and I hope what comes across in the book is that even though she is hard to deal with, I really admire her, and our whole idea of the empowered patient is often someone who may be kind of unpleasant because they're challenging what we're doing. So I encourage people to ask a lot of questions. If you're not getting answers that you understand, keep asking. Go to someone who can explain things to you in a way that makes sense to you. Just what I also ask people is try to be civil, try to be polite. Most of us in healthcare have good intentions, but we're overworked. And uh, someone's constantly snapping at you, well, what's that? Why are you doing that? Is that the right medication? That just ups the stress level. But if you're polite but persistent and direct, just keep at it until you feel like you're comfortable with the care you're getting. So you're saying just have maintain somewhat of a balance. I mean, it, it, yeah, compliant people are always easier to deal. How about kids? Right, <laughs> compliant kid is always easier. The one who's asking questions every five minutes, who may be the talented, brilliant one, is not necessarily the easiest one to raise. Right? I guess it's the same thing with patients. But that's, um, that's right. And and I think there can be nurses and physicians who sometimes just don't want to deal with someone like that. Because we don't have time or uh, you're not able to explain it in a way that makes sense to the patient and they keep asking and you, you get impatient with them because I'm being really clear and why aren't you getting it? And, you know, but we forget that communication is so important and that really needs to be a top priority for all of us. Now, most as a nurse, and you mentioned this earlier, you're not just dealing, obviously, with the patient, you're dealing with the partner, the spouse, the, you know, whomever, family or friend, mm-hmm. whoever is the, so uh, the caregivers, um, that, and that's a, how do you kind of maintain that? I mean, some nurses are better at it than others, I think, don't you? I mean, are able to, they may be good nurses, but not necessarily the best communicators. And if you're having to deal with a whole family situation, how do you do that? I, I assume you do it well. Oh, well, that's very nice. Um <clears throat> It is really challenging, and I have discovered on the job that I'm very good at juggling all these different emotions and reactions of different people without getting hooked into any one of them. The really important thing for me is I don't go in with a point of view about this is what should be done for this patient. I go in thinking I want to help this patient and this family figure out what they want to have happen, and I think that makes a really big difference that you want to support the patient in the midst of their family, and if the family's disagreeing with them, you've really got to support the patient, but going in without an agenda and letting them set the agenda really makes a huge difference. All right, that's so a treat, a, literally a treatment plan. You go in there with a plan. Just like, and you don't, I mean, I think that's obviously, you know, great advice. I think, uh, isn't one of, isn't your specialty end-of-life care? I mean, that's that's a focus, I should say. Yeah, um, I have, yeah. yeah and, and in fact, a year ago, I, I left the hospital. I wanted to see patients outside the hospital, and I've been doing home hospice, and that's been just incredibly 
enriching. How so? How is it enriching? I mean, like, because it is different. You see people in their own environment has to be really different than in the hospital. I think people behave differently, obviously, when they're at home than when they're in the hospital. So well, how yeah, is and, it, and the, yeah. the trick is that in the how hospital... Is it challenging? I'm, well, in the hospital, yeah, we can tell them, here's your metoprolol, you're going to take this three times a day, and we're going to give it to you. Or, you know, in, in people's homes, they may say, you know what, I just decided to stop taking that. Or they may get confused about how they're supposed to take something. Um, they may, maybe they're not supposed to be smoking because they're on oxygen, but they are still smoking. And what's hard about that as a clinician is in the hospital, we are in charge, right? We're setting the rules. We maintain control in the patient's home. That doesn't fly anymore. And that can be challenging, but I also really, really like it because I think you see patients finding a way to make their own peace with their care, and ultimately, that's the only way healthcare is really going to work. So what do you do when you see they're not following protocol, which I, as a social worker, people never, first of all, I think they only tell, if you're lucky, three-fourths of the truth to the nurse and the doctor, as you say, while they're in hospital. Are you taking this medication? Are you not smoking? Uh, or you're, you know, all these things you're not so eating, you should be eating this, and you go to their house and you realize they're doing exactly a what they're supposed to be doing and taking half the medication and, you know, lifting things that they're not supposed to. And so, you know, you're lucky if they're doing half the stuff you've recommended. So what do you do? Go back and tell the doctor? Or how do you handle that? Um, I try to pick my battles, what's yeah. really important here. And for several different patients, any one of those things could be the most important. Maybe someone who's diabetic with significant cardiac issues well, then their diet really, really does make a huge difference. Um, if it's a lung cancer patient who does not want to stop smoking and they've got a terminal diagnosis, well, does it really matter if they keep smoking? They enjoy smoking. Why not let them keep smoking? But just make sure they're using their oxygen in a safe way and their pain medication when they need it. So it's focusing on what really, really, really matters here. And Definitely in the hospital, I've gone to bat for people who wanted X, Y, or Z to happen or they needed to see a doctor right away because they didn't understand something that I wasn't able to explain to them because it was a prescribing question. Um, but there's also times when I've had patients say, well, I'm not going for that CT scan. I just don't feel like doing that right now. And it is really important. And I'll say, no, we have to do this. You have to do this. You are going to do this, <laughs> but I try to make clear why it matters for them and their care. How do you, as a nurse, maintain your own mental health? Because I mean, we're just kind of bringing up all these issues and all the things that you're confronted with on a day-to-day basis. Besides what you've written about in the book, but then also now, as you're saying, you know, going home and and uh, doing end-of-life care in people's homes. So, but you have to maintain your own self. I mean, you have yourself, your family. How do you get away from it headwise so that you don't get depressed, so that you take care of yourself? Um, yeah, that's a great question. For me, my family is really solace and sanctuary and the blessing that's come to me from oncology is I feel like every moment with my kids is really precious and so just being home and being with them 
really, really makes me happy. And I don't think I would have had that perspective if I hadn't done this work. And I really, really like that. But then also venting to other nurses is really important, having camaraderie among and between nurses, having physicians I can talk to about what's going on, that makes a huge difference. So talking stuff out is big. I'm a big fan of that. What happens when you don't get along with, let's say, a physician that you have to work with closely? How do you handle that? Yeah, I try to just be as professional as possible. Um, I mean, I, I do remember one doctor just being very rude about, we had a patient on our floor who really didn't belong there. He really needed to be on a surgical floor. And the doctor snapped at me about, I hear you and this and that, and blah, 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 blah. And I just kept saying, right, I, I know that. My concern is this patient really doesn't belong on this floor. So it, it, trying to be civil and appropriate and polite do I always pull that off? Well, no. <laughs> you know, I have gone to my supervisor and said, would you please tell Dr. X to stop being such yeah. a jerk? <laughs> All right, so, well, that's right out front. That's the, yeah, okay, well, you, that's, you have to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right, there's, there's what you tell people, and you try to model the behavior you want to see in the world, but am I a saint? Am I perfect? No. <laughs> Nearly perfect, maybe not perfect. So let's take other (laughs) nurses besides yourself. I mean, do you ever see nurses that you have to work with who aren't fitted for this, who you may, you realize this? I mean, do you go to your supervisor? You know, like what, because there are people who really, they may be suited to be nurses, but not necessarily oncology nurses, because that's a very specific specialty, right? So um, do you take it upon yourself to do anything, or you see somebody maybe who's not, not only not doing their job, but they're not doing it well or they're not qualified, what do you do? Yeah, that, um, I've never in the hospital come across that, um, but I, I have heard nurses tell stories and they will then go to the manager and say, look, here's what happened. And it's important to do that when it really matters and not just that you're being catty or snarky, which can sometimes happen. But in general, what I've seen is when other nurses have seen a nurse consistently make mistakes that suggest that he's just not getting the job and it's scary, they'll take that to the manager and usually those people find someplace else they want to be. I shouldn't say usually. Well, you know, one way or another, they don't stay in that job. Yeah. You know, I I touched on it, but I want to get back to it because it's in the news all the time, is this, uh, you know, end of life. And Mm -hmm. now, you know, with the baby boomers and aging population and spending all this money, what is it, the last three months that one is alive, you know, and uh, not having enough money left over for people who are vital and uh, out there. But um, so... You know, like what, and, and also having the conversation with families and patients about about end of life. And I, and I had read something that said, and I, I can't remember where it was, it said, uh, uh, hope is not a plan. Like, and, and I think sometimes with this end of life treatment or uh, medical care, we've been kind of like lulled into thinking that 
we have to we have to be hopeful, but it really isn't getting it. You know what I mean? Hope is not a treatment plan. Can we ever just really talk about the reality of dying and do you do that and how does that work out in your and your hospice care? I I definitely do that and most people at the point where that comes up, they're they know they're ready for it. They can do it and it's not actually as hard for people as everyone imagines. It's a very, very difficult conversation to have, but it's something people are thinking about if they've been sick for a long time and they've been feeling lousy for a long time. But yeah, this whole taking away hope and hope is not a plan, there's an instance of that in the book where my patient Sheila finds out she's going to have to have surgery and the odds are not great and the surgeon is very clear about that and her sister feels like they shouldn't give details like that. It should be much more positive and I talk about that in the book, the value of telling people the truth and the thing is people can't really give informed consent if they don't know what the risks of something are but then it can also have a really devastating emotional effect on people. And the way to balance those is to do these conversations gently, considerately, make sure you have time, make sure people don't feel abandoned, like, oh, you're going to die, and excuse me, I've got to go see another patient. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's true. I think that you really, uh, that's very true. And and you mentioned, like, the sister, and I know as a social worker, this you know, sometimes the families would always say, oh, don't tell him or her because it will upset them. Whereas the person themselves, you know when you're dying. You feel your body. You've lived in your body your whole life. You mm-hmm. know when you're deteriorating. But it's the sister or the mother or the the loved one who can't handle it, not necessarily the patient. And then you are kind of setting up this barrier and not allowing them to really talk about what's happening. Or at least that's been my experience from the social work perspective. No, I think I think that's exactly yeah. right. And listening to you, I'm thinking my mom is a social worker and she is so clear about her end-of-life preferences. And actually, she and I had this long conversation fairly recently about, well, here are the situations where you might want a feeding tube. And we talked about it and she said, no, I don't really want that. And, and you'd think that might be really uncomfortable and unpleasant, but it, it wasn't. It just felt very natural, and I felt really happy that I knew what she wanted. Yeah. I think the more you talk about things, you sort of feel like you know, if you just start talking about it, it becomes less and less uncomfortable, I mean, with any topic, uh, and it becomes just more sort of incorporated into these are the things we talk about. Uh, the more you keep it at a distance, we're not going to talk about death, we're not going to talk about end-of-life stuff, the more kind of like ominous it becomes, well, we can never broach that subject. Um, right. And, right, as people keep saying, we are all going to die. It sucks, right? We'd all like to live forever, but we are all going to die. And so just pretending we're not doesn't help. Right. It's how we die. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Sherwin Newland, the physician who wrote, I think he wrote the book, How We Die. I think he was on my show before. He's died since, but he was one of the first doctors who kind of approached that how that topic about how we die. Um, yeah, and that's such a such an incredible book. It's so moving, and you feel his compassion and 
Pauline Chen's book, Final Exam, similarly looks at our reluctance to talk about dying. And both those books are, are filled with compassion. And that's really what we need. And we're not always good at compassion in the hospital, oddly enough, because there just isn't time. We're so busy ordering things and getting things done and instead of sitting and holding someone's hand and talking to them. That, well, talking about books, we've been talking. We've been talking about your book, but I never like to give away the whole book because people yeah, go right. out and buy. It. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we talk about the issues surrounding the book, which we've done, and there's obviously lots more to talk about. But the book, the shift, one nurse, twelve hours, four patients' lives. Teresa Brown, great book. Uh, you can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. But uh, Teresa, so where can we uh, book the websites we can go to to learn more about the book and you? Yeah, well, mine is very easy to find. It's TeresaBrownRN.com, and my publisher is Algonquin, A-L-G-O-N-Q-U-I-N. But pretty much everything that's you know worth knowing about me, you can find on my website. Great. So we can constantly look you up just to see what you're doing, and and you right. are a contributor. <laughs> yes. But you, <laughs> I always like to follow people after I've had them on the show. But you do write for the New York Times and CNN, so I will be following you. Um, great to have you on the show this morning, and uh, love to have you back sometimes. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Great. We're going to take care. a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Don't go away because we'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Have you heard your 15 minutes of fame? How about four times that every single week? 
It's the Fame Game. Listen as Maddie Rose, who is up and coming in the world of fame, brings you fame from all walks of life. You'll hear from doctors, teachers, mentors, life heroes, as well as those in the fields of acting, movies, music, and more. Who knows? You might be the next one Maddie Rose talks to on the air. Listen for the Fame Game every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Kids Channel. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Noelle Yannick. We're going to be talking about pregnancy fitness. She's a personal trainer and prenatal fitness specialist. She is a International Sports Sciences Association Association, which is ISSA, Certified Personal Trainer. She's a coach who was a 2014 finalist in the Women's Health Next Fitness Star Competition, and she's a fitness expert for Fox News and Good Day Charlotte. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Noelle. Thank you. Great to be here with you. Well, uh, we're going to be talking about fitness. It seems seems we're all talking about fitness all the time, and but we're going to be specifically today talking about pregnancy and fitness, and it's kind of a good topic for me because a lot of my friends' daughters and daughter-in-laws are pregnant now and trying to stay fit, and I think it's different today than it was 20 years ago in terms of what we define as fitness and pregnancy. So let's, you know, uh, I guess the first question, why your interest in fitness and pregnancy? I mean, you've always been a fitness expert, that's your profession, but now why fitness and pregnancy? Well, you know, I had my my son three years ago, and I'm pregnant again. I'm six months pregnant. So, Congratulations. You know, it, it, thank you, thank you. The modification, the, the changes that go on in a woman's body um, during pregnancy, I'm absolutely compelled by and interested in. Um, and I, I can't say, you know, I probably prefer not being pregnant versus being pregnant overall, <laughs> but as a woman that wants to have babies and more children, um, I've really decided to take the lead and tackle a lot of the issues, the sticky issues, and a lot of the gray area to try to clarify for women what we can and can't be doing during this time to keep ourselves as fit as possible. Noelle, what are the issues? What's the difference? You're right. I mean, obviously, your body, you're growing a person inside of you, so that right. let's just start with that. <laughs> and in doing so, everything changes. I've had three pregnancies, three babies. They're all grown up. Okay, you but uh, you never forget the whole, you, you know what? It's like it was yesterday anyway. And so what? Oh, let, let's kind of go down. So what are the differences in terms of keeping fit, you know, when you're pregnant? And I have to just one other thing because I looked on your website. 
there's a picture of you nine months pregnant. I mean, you're gorgeous. It's like you're, and the baby's, you can see the, it's not like you're a skinny little thing. You look healthy and fit with a great big yes. baby. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're so it's, sweet. I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard. You do plump up just a little bit. I mean, one of the first things that I will say, and I say this, to all my girls and on my YouTube videos and all that information I put out there, you will gain about 3% body fat. You don't have to gain more than that, but you plump up. Yeah, you know, I see a lot. Sometimes I see a woman that looks like she needs to, you know, her hormonal balance might not be where it's supposed to be. Um, progesterone and estrogen will raise your body fat percentage naturally just a little bit. So, yeah, you know, I, 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 look, I look a little bit more plump than normal, but I always tell women I try to enjoy the good things that come along that, like glowing skin, you know, shinier hair, brighter eyes. So, you know, there's, there, there is a lot of good that comes along with that little bit of extra pudge that we can carry along during pregnancy. How much weight are you supposed to gain? I mean, it seems to me they change, they being, I don't know, the medical, yeah, at first it's gain as much as you want, then 10 pounds, 50, what are you, is there any supposed to, or is it it depend on each, yeah. they, the ACOG is, they, they say 25 pounds, 20 to 25 pounds. I gained 31 pounds my last pregnancy, and I'm on track right now to probably gain that much. I mean, I'm, I'm a little over halfway through, and I'm like, I think I'm 15 pounds in. So, you know, I'm probably going to be um, going that same route. Um, you know, I, there are some women that, you know, say, I only gained 20 pounds. You know, good for, good for you girls. I don't want my women obsessing about how much fat, you know, fat weight they gain. Now, if they feel like it's getting a little out of control, like let's say six months in, you are at, you know, a 20 or 25-pound weight gain mark, it's okay. You can scale back your diet. You know, a lot of women are afraid to do stuff like that. Oh, but, you know, I don't want to um, keep the baby from getting the calories they need. No, the baby's going to have the calories that they need. You can... You can um, draw, just, just don't eat, like, let's say just make the portion smaller each time you eat. You know, each time you sit down for a meal, make the portion smaller. And that's a great way to, over, you know, three weeks to, to lose, you know, seven to ten pounds. Isn't it also, it's, it's what you eat, too. I mean, I remember, I mean, my first pregnancy, I, I've been, I've been, well, now I can say it. I mean, I gained like 48 pounds. I started out at 104 pounds. But then I, it kind of all went away, nursing, after, and I had like 10 pounds that I had to work on actually losing, which took me a year to right. lose. And I know you say it took you, what, six months? You had 11 pounds to lose after your first pregnancy? Yeah. So it kind yeah. of went, it, I guess I needed to gain that. I don't, and it was all on good food. I never eat bad, uh, but I just, you know, that was sort of, and then with each pregnancy, I gained less and less, I, I, you know, and the baby was bigger and bigger each time. So, but, Wow, I know. I'm so afraid of having, like, you know, a 10, 11-pounder here. I know I hear it because, you know, our, 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 abdo- our abdominal wall is capable of stretching a little bit more each time. So I believe that that has something to do with, like, how, how much the body can carry in terms of weight. Um, but, you know, again, I always say this. The goal here is to have, you know, a healthy baby and a healthy pregnancy. And in order to do that, it is all about what you're eating to go along with uh, your first question. 
Absolutely. I mean, keep it clean, keep it fresh, just like you do before baby came along. This time, I know when I'm, I'm pregnant, I'm a little bit even more motivated to eat fresh and clean because I think about the fact that the nutrients are going straight to my baby. Um, you know, it, that, it's, such a, it's such a motivating factor there for me. You know, I want to create, the, I want to give the baby um, all the building blocks it needs to have a really stable uh, life. You know, you're creating this life and you really, the fresh foods and fish and lean meats are exactly what the baby needs to be as strong as possible. Now, you're a coach and a motivator, and you help women get through their pregnancies in a healthy way, exercise and diet. But, Noelle, okay, the women, let's say, who are similar to yourself, they need the help, they want to be coached, but they've eaten well beforehand, they're, they're, you know, a normal weight, a good weight for them, have a good BMI or whatever. How do you help women who get pregnant and they haven't eaten healthy and maybe say they're really overweight, uh, but it's going to, because it would seem to me that would be very difficult for women like yes, it is. in that, yeah. So how do you work with those women? Now, are you asking me how do I work with them during their pregnancy or afterward? Well, I was going to say during. Do you work with them during, during. their pregnancy or, at, or very in both? Very sensitive issue. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, during it's very sensitive because, you know, when if you've gained, like, if, if, if you're 20 to 30 pounds off, this, off the charts, um, meaning you gained about 50 pounds, um, you know, at any point during your pregnancy, um, then then it is tricky because there is going to be some pushing it involved, meaning you do need to kick up the cardio. But it would be a slow progressional thing. Now, I, I always tell my girls, if you're a beginner to exercise, you can begin now. So those rules are completely outdated. Do not start exercise if you're a beginner when you're pregnant. That's not, that's not the case anymore. They're not saying that anymore. What you do need to understand is that you're only going to go about three times a week for the first two weeks, and on a perceived rate of exertion scale, you're going to keep yourself between a four and a seven, 10 being the highest. You're going to keep yourself between a four and a seven, and really you will never go above a seven. So what is a seven? Uh, you can carry on a conversation, okay? So you should not feel that, that out of breath. It's going to take you a little bit longer to lose the weight than it would if you weren't pregnant. But again, we just don't want the heart rate to be so out of control. As we know, the baby's heart rate is so much faster than ours and is completely based on what, what ours is. Um, so that, that's why we have to be careful about exactly how much you're pushing it. So exer- I, would, I would implement exercise if she was pregnant and um, at a regular exercise regimen. I cannot say stress enough how much re- being regular, being consistent, have to do with your overall success, um, and that looks like three times a week or more if you can handle it, and then the diet. I mean, you know, all, all success and weight loss has to do with, with diet. Exercise is just the icing on the cake and I think motivates us to eat well, so we'd have to reel in um, what she was eating and when. All right, let's now and turn it, let's uh, do the flip side of that because I know a lot of young women that I know are in great shape. They like you are. And they've yes. been used to running marathons and triathlons. And then it seems to me they're pregnant and they're still, can you still do that kind uh, you know, of exercise or up until Absolutely. what point should you stop or what? Absolutely you can. You know, it's so cool because I'm, I'm on such, I feel like I'm in such a cutting edge um, 
you know, field right now with uh, speaking on the, on, with the topic of fitness during pregnancy because there are so many fit women out there that are pregnant and wanting to continue on their marathon running, um, and, and they can. So for those of us who are, already came into pregnancy being fit, we continue our regular workout regimens until about four to five months when we start showing. I'm, I'm tall and five nine, so I'm, I'm six months along right now, and I just stopped um, doing exercises on my back, for example. So there's just a few modifications that you make. So between four and six months, you're going to stop doing exercises on your back. In terms of running, you know, that's going to be at some point you might feel some pelvic floor pressure there. That is the weight of your baby pushing on your bladder. You might notice a little bit of leaking when you're running. Um, you know, women can determine how they want to handle that. You want to be careful about pelvic floor exhaustion when it um, comes to running especially because each time you hit the pavement, you know, that pelvic floor, the, the weight of the baby, it's like having a weight sitting on your pelvic hammock. And it's just like knocking it each time you hit the ground and you're running. So a lot of women's pelvic floors are able to withstand the weight of the baby like throughout the pregnancy. I mean, I think I read about women doing triathlons and marathons when they're eight months pregnant. More power to you. Um, But if you're starting to notice like any leakage, um, just a, a lot of pressure down there after you run, um, first of all, raise your feet when you get home. That will help. You can lay on your back for up to, you know, one to two minutes without any problems. Raise your feet up, put them up against the wall. And second of all, consider if you need to draw back on the atten- intensity. So to answer your question, you got to listen to your body. You know, I, I really, it, I, in personal training, I can really help women figure out what's best for them in, in, in their specific cases. But um, for the masses, for, for all the women I'm speaking to right now, you really have to listen to your body. If you're starting to show signs of that pelvic floor swelling, um, you know, it, it, it's time to back off. You've only got a couple more months left of your pregnancy anyway, and you can get back to it soon after you deliver. Um, so, so, so keep that in mind and keep active, but just decrease the intensity. I think you said something really important, Noelle, and this always gets to me because I think we tend to, you know, if we're in a vulnerable position like pregnancy, you look to authority, people like you, doctors, who are, you know, people who are caring for us, but the thing that you said, listen to your body, like listen to your body. Okay, ladies, if you're feeling fatigued or you don't feel well or as you described some of the physical things, you know, that you might feel strain on your body, listen, you have to do what's good for you and I think sometimes we get away from that. We just keep trying to do some kind of a routine that isn't working. You're nine months pregnant and you just can't do it anymore. You know, I mean, maybe in the extreme. Yeah, so I think that's really... It's true, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, women, they get confused. We keep doing what we've always been doing, and, you know, they over-fatigue um, their, their entire body, not just specific muscles. And, and that's when it's time to, A, take a nap. You've got to rest. You've got to rest even more than we were resting before we were, we were pregnant. And, uh, B, consider another plan. I mean, Pilates is a great option for pregnant women. Yoga is a great option for pregnant women. And I know it's not as cool or as hardcore as CrossFit and running marathons because I get, I love to push it like 110, 120% when I work out. But remember, this is a very short period of your life. And the outcome here is all about having a healthy pregnancy, a healthy baby. And, you know, there really is only like that last trimester where we really, like a lot of women are feeling like they need to scale back. 
So now, it's, it's when, you are, when, you're, when you're healthy and you're exercising, doing all those kinds of things that you're suggesting, um, how does that fare in terms of when you actually give birth? Does it, make the, does it tend, not always, obviously, Absolutely. to make the birth process? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, having an epidural, which, which I choose to do, um, you know, numbs the feeling down there. Um, but I, right, right now, I am actually considering not doing it because I, I so train my pelvic floor muscles to be so strong that I actually want to feel using them during the pregnancy and it, it will go much faster. Absolutely. If these muscles are already uh, built up and strong and you have that mind-body connection, you know how to control them and that's so key, um, then, yeah, you can push that baby out. It's, it, it, like, you can feel, obviously, you can feel uh, labor going on, so you know where the baby is, and you can allocate the muscles just by having that mind-body connection built up and, and push that baby out safely and well and quickly, too. And you're in control. <laughs> or at least you it, think you, you are, are until the control, baby's born, yeah. actually. <laughs> um, well, well, now, let's talk... Yeah. I'm sorry, what did you say? No, go ahead. You, you were about to say so. I was going to ask you then my next question. Um, no, you go ahead. I, I, yeah, you go ahead. I, I just, once the baby is out uh, and you're nursing, and you, I, I was one of those nursers for 18 months, almost two years, I think, for one of them. But um, so then what happens in terms, and then you've got to, then you have some work to do. I mean, you know, you've uh-huh. been, yeah. <laughs> Uh, even if you I mean, again, why I got so into it, because I'm like, why is going on with my body? So when you're breastfeeding, that's a whole new set of hormones. You know, these are my least favorite. Uh, progesterone is very high when you're, when, you're, um, when you're nursing. And this is like, you know, the, the hair loss thing comes about. And uh, also, the, the biggest thing for me was my body was going to hold on to about 1% to 2% more body fat than I like to keep myself at. So, you know, again, these are just our female hormones working in their finest way. It's okay. It's natural. It's the way it's supposed to be. Um, so I, I couldn't get as lean as I wanted to get. I also, your testosterone is so low during this time. I mean, just think of pregnancy and breastfeeding as you're all girl. I mean, so y- you cannot build muscle. Like I couldn't le- build that lean body mass that I like to keep. I like to be, um, you know, very, like strong and lean. Is, is my style, my look, the way I like to keep my body. But when I was breastfeeding, that was just not going to happen. It was more of like a lean, kind of softer look. So you can exercise, and w- while you're doing that, you're going to keep track of your milk supply because at first it's going to cut into your milk supply, but I want you to give it three to five days, okay? And what will happen is your body will get used to the change and then give you back the milk supply you had, before you started exercising. It should only take about three to five days. If it doesn't, if the milk supply drops altogether, then you're working too hard, you're pushing too hard, and you need to draw back on the, on the intensity of your workouts. So this is something I monitor when I get my postpartum girls. So, and I remember, but when you're nursing, I mean, I remember being so hungry, really hungry that, you know, so hungry. for good, yeah, and for good food, not for junk food, but for real, you know, I wanted to sit down and eat that really healthy sandwich or whatever it was, but I, I, and so I always allowed myself that, and then sort of after gradually started thinking about losing the weight or losing the 10 pounds that I needed to lose, and, and I guess it's give yourself a break, isn't it? I mean, don't be so hard yeah, on you yourself. Know, it, sounds, it sounds to me like you just, it clicked for you, and you just got it, because, you know, especially during the first 
you'd be surprised maybe, um, like, you know, the requests I get, you know, well, I'm ready to start working out, um, you know, I, I, I'm ready to start losing weight, uh, and I'll write them back and say, you know, how, how postpartum are you? You know, how, how far past the labor and delivery are you? I'm two weeks. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, you need to chill out and just, you've got to relax right now. You've got so much going on with trying to get the baby on a schedule and all. Um, it, it just, just really do what you can to relax and know that that will be taken care of. Have confidence in that. Just like how you were saying, I kind of gave myself a break. And I got to it when, when I could. Yeah, about four to six weeks after your doctor's clearance is when you really know that, you know, breastfeeding is going well and, um, and, and you can get back to exercise. So, so you will reach those goals. It's just you've got to be patient with yourself and with your body. Yeah. And I think, yeah, exactly. And I think that's so a big patient, be kind, and give yourself a break, and it will all sort of fall into place. And sometimes, particularly with the first one, as you're talking, um, it's difficult to do. Once you've had, like anything, the experience, you realize that, you know, you will become you again, and those hormones will get back to normal, because as you say, the hormones are totally awry, totally different than when you're not pregnant or not nursing. So, uh, yeah, real, really important. Uh, so now I, you know, I recommend everybody go to your website, which I did, but um, there is, uh, it's noelianicfitness.com. Um, a- any place else that if we want to, anybody wants to contact you, or, I mean, you are a fitness expert, you are a trainer, yes. you do coaching, where do you do it? Well, I... Um the best the best way to follow me is through Instagram. I, I like I post all the time and I love I love the tips that I post. They come from inquiries from you guys, from from all of all of my followers. So my, my Instagram name is Noel Yannick Fitness and I'm also on Twitter and Facebook too. I just I love the platform of Instagram. I, it's my favorite. Um, and then I am coming out with I'm working on right now a prenatal, postnatal and just general fitness guide. So that will be for sale um, at the beginning of the year. So in 2016, in January 2016, those will go up on my website and they'll be um, in PDF format um, with video and pictures and all that jazz. So that's, that's something great. to look forward to. So if you're planning to get pregnant, wait till the first of the year. <laughs> then you'll have all the information, <laughs> right? <laughs> you'll exactly. Be- well, in the meantime, in the meantime, like while I'm writing these these workout plans, I'm posting a lot of some of the tips that I'm writing in my social media. Like, for example, today I posted an awesome hit kettlebell workout that Pregos can absolutely do. Um, and, and it is one of the workouts in, in, in this uh, PDF file that I'm working on. So, so stay in touch with me through social media, and uh, you can also direct message me through there. My email's on my website as well. So, if anyone has questions, please let me know. I love hearing from you guys. Great, Noel Yannick. Great having you on the show today. Personal trainer, prenatal fitness specialist, fitness expert for Fox News and Good Day Charlotte. Uh, Lots of good information, and we'll get more of it at the first of the year when your book comes out. Um, we have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at 
www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 